welcome to the latest employment law podcast from the Stevenson Harwood employment team. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Serena Fawkes and I'm an associate in the team. With me today is Parvis Ghani, an employment partner in the Stevenson Harwood employment group. Today we are going to do a roundup of the latest key employment cases over the past few months and cover any practical takeaway points. In this podcast, we are going to look at recent cases on four topics. The first topic is employment status and the Supreme Court's decision in the Pimlico Plumbers and Smith case. This case considered the difference between individuals classed as workers for employment law purposes and genuine self-employed contractors. The second topic is disability discrimination in the case of City of York Council and Grosset, in which the Court of Appeal gave guidance on how to interpret a claim for discrimination arising from disability. The third topic is whistleblowing, and we'll look at the Court of Appeal's judgment in the Kilrain and London Borough of Wandsworth case, which considers if there should be a clear distinction between whether the claimant disclosed information about wrongdoing or merely made an allegation of wrongdoing. The fourth and final topic is misconduct, and we will look at two cases. The case of Kintiles Commercial in Borongo, and the case of Umbubago and Homerton University Hospital NHS Foundation Trust, which were both heard by the Employment Appeal Tribunal. So, starting with the first topic, employment status in the Pimlico Plumbers case. This is a well-reported case that has finally reached the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court upheld the Court of Appeal and Employment Appeal Tribunal's findings that Mr Smith was a worker when engaged by Pimlico Plumbers. This worker status entitled him and others in his position to benefit from protection against discrimination, as well as being entitled to sick pay, holiday pay and other protections that are afforded to workers but not genuine self-employed contractors. So Parvis, what are the key issues in these types of employment status cases? So generally, these types of cases focus on whether the contractual terms of the working relationship between the business and the individual created a consultancy arrangement where the individual is a genuine self-employed contractor or whether they are more akin to a relationship where the individual will be deemed a worker for employment law purposes. So when considering the contractual relationship, the tribunals and courts will examine the terms of the written contract, but also take a detailed look at the reality of how the relationship operates in practice and how this is similar or different to the written contract. Now, attaining status as a worker or even an employee gives an individual protections under employment law and working time regulations that are not available to self-employed contractors. So predominantly, these focus on rights to sick pay and holiday pay, but in the Pimlico Plumbers case, Mr Smith was claiming unlawful deduction from wages, holiday pay, and that he had also suffered disability discrimination. Now, the key issues in this particular case were the number of hours Mr Smith was expected to work for the business, with him essentially being required to work full-time for Pimlico Plumbers. Now, Pimlico Plumbers had a degree of control over his working arrangements, including the van he drove, the uniform he wore, and the way he worked. The contract included restrictive covenants limiting Mr Smith's activities during and after the engagement. Also important was the absence of a genuine right of substitution in the contract, meaning that if Mr Smith could not take on a particular job, he could only pass it on to another Pimlico Plumbers contractor who would have similar restrictions. Now this all meant that Pimlico Plumbers cared not only that the work was done by the contractor, but how it was being done. And what did the Supreme Court decide? So the Supreme Court found that the personal service element of a worker relationship was present despite the limited substitution clause. So personal performance by Mr Smith remained the dominant feature of the contract. The court also found that Pimlico Plumbers was not Mr Smith's client or customer. He had to make himself available to work for them 40 hours per week, even though they were not obliged to offer him work. There were onerous terms about how and when Pimlico Plumbers had to pay him 
and it exercised tight control over how he did the work, including what he wore and the vehicle he drove. So this case will now go back to the Employment Tribunal to decide the substantive issues, including whether Mr Smith suffered from disability discrimination. And what does the decision mean for employers? So I'd say this decision wasn't a surprise, given that Pimlico Plumbers lost at the Tribunal, the EAT and the Court of Appeal. Uh, We've also had the Uber, City Sprint, Addison Lee and Deliveroo cases, and the direction of travel in this area is fairly clear. They dealt with similar points about whether individuals are genuinely self-employed or workers. What these cases show is that the starting point for the tribunals and courts will be the written contract. Now you get this right and stick to its terms in practice and it is possible to have a genuine self-employed contract relationship. The Deliveroo case was a good example of this where the drivers had a genuine right of, of substitution. However, even if the contract looks right, the way it's operated in practice can totally undermine its effect. So when individuals aren't allowed to substitute services and are penalised for declining work or are subject to extensive supervision and control over the way they do this work, this all leads to a much higher risk that the individuals could be workers. We can help clients with drafting of contracts and flag risks for them to watch when the contract is operated in practice. So moving on to our second topic, which is disability discrimination and the Court of Appeals decision in City of York Council and Grosset. Mr Grosset was a teacher who was dismissed for showing an 18 certificate film, the film Halloween, to 15-year-old pupils in class, some of whom were particularly vulnerable. Mr Grosset alleged that his judgment was impaired by the stress caused by having cystic fibrosis, and he said the conduct which caused his dismissal, showing the film, was something arising from his disability. Previously, Mr Grosset had had a reduced workload that allowed him enough time to complete the three hours of daily exercise required for his condition. A new head teacher made changes that added to his workload and no reasonable adjustments were made by the school, meaning that he had much less time to carry out his exercises. Mr Grosset alleges that this extra work and its impact on his ability to manage his condition caused him stress, as well as being stressed about a potential lung transplant. He said this stress was why he had made the error of judgment to show the film to the pupils. I think that this is a difficult case for employers, as Mr Grosset was found to have been fairly dismissed under unfair dismissal rules, but also his dismissal was an act of disability discrimination, because he was dismissed of something arising from his disability. It was decided that the dismissal was discriminatory, and a written warning would have been the appropriate approach, despite the tribunal's findings that it was not an unfair dismissal. An occupational health report produced before Mr Grosset's dismissal so that there was no connection between his condition and the decision to show the unsuitable film, and the school thought that it was pursuing the legitimate aim of safeguarding vulnerable pupils when it made the decision to dismiss. So what this means for employers is that the tribunals will more easily find a causative link between an employee's disability and their suspected misconduct. So even if occupational health do not see such a link, this case makes it easier for employees to assert a causative link just through the stress caused by their condition, rather than by the condition itself. The fact that the employer hadn't made reasonable adjustments was also damaging to its case and would have brought the sympathy of the courts. So employers need to tread even more carefully when dealing with employees with health conditions that may be classed as a disability. If an employee seems to have committed some act of misconduct or be performing poorly, then the employer will need to carefully consider whether the employee has said this is connected to their health condition and whether there could be any link to a disability. Getting an occupational health report will still be helpful, but an employer cannot simply assume that a tribunal will agree with its findings. I think also the case is a useful reminder of how important it is to follow a sensible process when approaching reasonable adjustments. This shouldn't just involve telling the employee that they can take time off if they need it, which is obviously what Mr Grosset was told, but arranging a proper occupational health assessment process to consider what proactive adjustments can be made to reduce the difficulties that may arise from the employee's condition. 
I think that if reasonable adjustments had been made in respect of Mr Grosset, the outcome may well have been different. Thanks, Parvis. Moving on to whistleblowing and the case of Kilrain and London Borough of Wandsworth. This considered previous case law that suggested that if a statement was merely an allegation of wrongdoing, without disclosing information about the wrongdoing, this could not be classed as a protected disclosure and qualify for whistleblowing protection. What did the Court of Appeal have to say about this? Well, the Court of Appeal upheld the EAT's decision. They both held that the tribunal had taken an unnecessarily strict approach in applying a rigid dichotomy between information and allegations of wrongdoing. The tribunal in this case thought it was following the EAT's approach in another case called Cavendish Monroe and uh, Gidold. The tribunal thought it would needed to make a clear distinction between whether a statement amounts to a disclosure that was merely an allegation of unspecified wrongdoing or a disclosure clearly providing information about the nature of the suspected wrongdoing. So the EAT and Court of Appeal have clarified that such a rigid approach is not necessary and the statement could be both making an allegation and providing information in order to qualify for protection under the Employment Rights Act. And what does this mean for employers? Does this mean it's easier for employees to make protected disclosures? I would say in short, yes, as tribunals will look at the content of a statement overall rather than picking apart uh, and looking at what should be classed as information and what should be classed as only an allegation. In practice, employees who have some idea of the law in this area will make their statements clear so that the debate focuses around whether the disclosure was made in the public interest and whether there is any causal link between the alleged disclosure and the detriment or dismissal. If an employee merely says look, I think you're doing something wrong, then this won't be classed as a protected disclosure. If they start referring to legal obligations that have been breached or explaining why they think wrongdoing has been has happened, then the courts will often take a generous approach in classing the statement as a protected disclosure. However, if a statement isn't clearly a protected disclosure, then in practice both the public interest and causation tests will probably be easier to prove for an employer. Thanks, Parvis. We'll now turn to our final topic. Misconduct and the two Employment Appeal Tribunal decisions in Kintars Commercial in Barongo and Umbubagu and Homerton University Hospital NHS Foundation Trust. In the Quintiles case, the individual was dismissed for gross misconduct, but on appeal this was recategorised as serious misconduct. The dismissal was upheld, however, and the individual sued for unfair dismissal. The Employment Tribunal found that the dismissal was unfair and a warning should have been given for serious misconduct instead of the dismissal being upheld. The EAT decided that that was wrong, and there was no assumption that, in general, employers could not dismiss for a first offence that didn't amount to gross misconduct. Similarly, in the Homerton NHS case, the employee had been employed for 15 years with an unblemished disciplinary record. The employee was an orthopaedic surgeon who was found to have breached new internal rules on behaviour and safety at work. The individual was aware he was being monitored, but was investigated for dozens of suspected breaches of these new rules. He wasn't suspended during the investigation process and it took over eight months for the disciplinary action to be commenced, by which time no reported incidents had arisen for 16 months. The individual was summarily dismissed for gross misconduct due to concerns about patient safety and he lost his appeal against dismissal. His claims for unfair dismissal, wrongful dismissal and race discrimination were all dismissed by the tribunal. He appealed the finding in relation to unfair dismissal, but the EAT dismissed his appeal. The EAT held that a series of acts could demonstrate a pattern of conduct and be sufficiently serious to undermine the relationship of trust and confidence between employer and employee. This damaged trust and confidence could in turn amount to gross misconduct, whether caused by one single act or a series of acts over a period of time. A separate point arose in this case as to whether the decision of a regulatory body about the misconduct in question should impact on a tribunal's judgment. 
In this case, the tribunal refused to reconsider its judgment after the General Medical Council decided to close its case against the claimant without finding that the claimant's fitness to practice was impaired. The EAT found that the tribunal was entitled to look only at the employer's decision-making in deciding whether dismissal was in the band of reasonable responses available to employers. A contrasting decision from a regulator would not necessarily mean that the employer's decision made before the regulators was unfair in the circumstances. So, Parvis, what's the takeaway point for employers from these two cases? Well, I think these two cases are helpful for employers as they show that both a single serious act and a series of less serious acts can both be grounds to fairly dismiss an employee for misconduct. Now, the important point here is to consider whether the relationship of trust and confidence has been seriously undermined such that a warning isn't appropriate. So employers, I would say, should still be careful before dismissing employees for a first offence or an offence that doesn't quite amount to gross misconduct. But um, these cases are helpful because there's no rule that such dismissals will be unfair. Thanks, Parvis, and thanks to all of you for listening. You can listen again to our podcast and subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website. (music) 